So good morning, everybody. Welcome to Rebuilding Business, a series of interviews with outstanding entrepreneurs and experienced leaders who have reputations as trailblazers in their fields. Our intention is always to share that experience with, experience with you over five bite-sized 10 to 12 minute interviews, one each day of the working week. And we hope they're gonna help you to consider how in this age of post-COVID can we rebuild your business or improve its sustainability, increase your creativity and innovation to beat your competition, or we're certainly hoping that you're gonna pick up some nuggets that are gonna help you on your leadership journey. Now, today, I am very excited that we have Jay Allen. Hi, Jay. Hi, how are you? Um, very, very well. Just to give our audience a little bit of background about you, uh, Jay is a two-times Global Entrepreneur Big Impact to Business Award-winning scale mentor. He's listed on the UK on the Clear Business Thinking Power 100. Having served as a rapid deployment soldier with the British Army, Jay went on to subsequently work with two of the national chains of supermarket at the highest level of business. And he's also helped them to generate more than 480 million pounds of income before branching out in his role as entrepreneur, setting up four of his own businesses, scaling and exiting twice before founding the Add a Zero Business Challenge. It is fantastic to have you. And I do recognize, um, I don't think you're in Thailand, but that must be James Bond Island behind you. It is indeed. Uh, well done. 10 out of 10, Lily. Uh, yes, that is indeed James Bond Island from Goldfinger. How oh, fantastic. And, and this, is, this is from a, a honeymoon of about a year ago, isn't it? Uh, a year ago in two weeks. Yeah, as so we we're, we're still in the honeymoon phase of the relationship. Is oh, that right? Very much so, definitely. <laughs> and long may it ever last. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk to you. You've got a, a massive of business experience help me to scale up both national chains and also the SME market which is where you're doing a huge amount of work at the moment plus the multinational work that I know that you do with speaking. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this situation that we're in with COVID at the moment. Can you just share with me what's your experience been and the experience of your clients for the first few minutes? Yeah certainly I, I think like everybody um, as soon as um, we heard of the pandemic and the risk back in January this year um, there was this uncertainty about the likelihood of whether it was going to stretch as far as the UK and its impact on us. And then obviously that devastating blow on the 23rd of March when the Prime Minister for the first time ever um, instructed the, the countries to go into the lockdown. Um, it had a, a huge impact both within our own business and many of our clients that, that you know, for the first time ever we're, we're uncertain as to exactly what the future held and how to be able to respond to it. And yet I still believe that a few months later on that anyone who hasn't used this as the world's opportunity of pressing the reset switch, of being able to take some time out and reflect on exactly where are we and where do we want us to be and how far away are, they, are we from that. Anyone that hasn't utilised that or simply furloughed and, and sat for three or four months waiting for all of this to be over um, is going to be far worse placed than, than those who have really, really given it consideration and applied themselves to be able to say, what does the future look like in a post-COVID era? Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that, 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 um, that you always talk about, I know I've, I've obviously attended a number of your talks and, and we've worked together, is, is this start with the end in mind, isn't it? Let's not start from here, let's start with where we want to go to. So just, just talk to me a little bit about exit plan before we start to think about how do we either build a more sustainable business or, or grow to scale? As far as I'm concerned, any day that's not spent working towards what the exit looked like is simply a day wasted. 
um, we, we need to understand that if we're going to create a sustainable business, i.e. something that's going to last for longer than our entity within it, then we need to give considerations to what does that look like. And the sooner we can do that, the sooner we can change the role that we take within our business to employ people into a career rather than a job and helps to be able to make ourselves redundant. Surely as a business owner, your first and primary role is to be able to make yourself redundant as quickly as possible. Yeah, and you can spend more time in that lovely place in Thailand with a little bit of luck. Go back to James Bond, Ireland. It's one of the things we always used to teach when I was as delivering for Goldman Sachs on the 10,000 small businesses is the, the 50 ways to leave your lover. Because, of course, there's lots of different ways to exit, aren't there? But, but you talk about four magic questions, don't you? Just, do you want to share those with our audience? Yes, certainly. Um, and usually these are the four questions that any of our clients find the most difficult to answer and yet are probably the most fundamental uh, milestones, if you like, of being able to forge a difference between a lifestyle business and that of a business that then scales and exits. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the, the, the first question is, on what date are you going to sell the business? The second question is, and how much are you going to sell it for? The third question is, who's going to buy the business? Who are you going to sell it to? And the fourth and probably the most difficult question at this juncture is, why the hell would they pay that for it? Now, if you can find answers to those four questions, and then you can start to create a business plan and a strategy in order to be able to take it from a, a, an idea, ideology in creating some form of potential opportunity for the future, you'll quickly find that you think differently about the business. As a result, you do differently about the business. And there's a significant difference the business will respond differently to that thought process. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because many people go into a business, they have no concept of what that exit might look like. They're like, well, actually, I love doing what I do, whatever it may well do, do, you know, be making widgets or um, selling your services or PR or, or being a solicitor, whatever it may well be. And, and I had this conversation with a, a prospective new client last autumn and I said, what's your exit strategy? And he said, uh, well, well, this is what I want to do. This is, and I was like, fine, but at some stage there'll be an exit strategy. What do you do then? He said, I guess I'll hand it down to my son. And I said, how does your son feel about that? And he said, I'm not sure because he's three. <laughs> you just go, okay, that's, that's a little bit too much planning on that perspective. But you must get those challenges from people going, I don't want to sell it. Um, so therefore, how relevant are those questions? So, so what's your response in that case? It's a great question and one that defines the difference between the likelihood of them being an ideal client for us to work with and somebody that's probably not ready for the scale methodology that we apply. Um, so for us, it's, it's quite a measure with regards to how people respond to that as to whether they're actually ready for what we have to offer them or, or whether we need to invite them to go and work with a, a, a colleague or an or a, or a, a associate um, prior to being ready to be able to answer those four questions. Mm. But realistically... We, we can either build a business that's a lifestyle business that is going to provide us with the lifestyle that we want and this and the other. But I wonder as to how long you're going to remain madly in love with being able to get up early and going to bed late and working evenings and weekends and all that type of stuff. If the proverbial happens like a pandemic and it's not panning out the way that you first anticipated. Now, you know, you were kind enough to be able to, uh, to read out a couple of the accolades that I've been uh, fortunate enough to have uh, acquired along the way. Um, and having exited two businesses now, I can genuinely say 
I don't work anymore. This has now become a vocation. I do it because I choose to rather than because I have to. And I can genuinely say that I love what I do now because it's on my terms. Now, wouldn't it be nice if all business owners could get to a stage where you could do what you choose to do, whether that be manage the business as a chairman or, or go back to being a janitor or something, if that's what you would prefer to do, but do it because you choose rather than because you have to. And what are the what are the mistakes either that you've made or you've seen other people make on exit? I, I know I do actually have a couple of clients who have been talking to about exiting for the last two or three years and they've been going, no, I'm just going to hang on. I'm just going to hang on. And, and, and 2020, I reckon 2020, 2021, I'm going to be ready. And of course, now the value of their businesses has fallen through the floor. So I guess there's always that challenge of when is the right time? Timing is so critical, isn't it? But are there any other mistakes that you've seen? Yeah, I would say that the two common mistakes are one, their own assumption of what the business is worth compared to what whoever's going to purchase it is worth. And that disillusion between their value on the business and somebody else's value on the business. And don't get me wrong, um, I understand that there is a methodology using EBITDA values to be able to give some acknowledgement of how much a business might be worth in the industry and benchmark it. But in actual fact, I've neither bought nor sold any business based on EBITDA value. I've always sold it on the values to which it is to the person incumbent of taking it over. And ironically, you can usually smash EBITDA value out the, uh, out the water if you can create a business that is more valuable to somebody else than it is to you right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? it? Really, your business is worth how much somebody else is willing to pay. That's crucially, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Let's look at something like WhatsApp. When WhatsApp first sold, it sold for 17 and a half times EBITDA value. And at the time, it wasn't a profitable business. Um, It was about being able to understand who they were going to sell it to and to create a business that was so, so aligned with what the future owner could then do with it that it made it more valuable to them than it did to the current owners and the, uh, the founders of it. YouTube similarly wasn't it about eight, eight ten years ago when you know, YouTube was was just starting to to evolve but as you say not profitable at that time and people got wow you know how on earth can it be worth that but now look at it it's such a critical part of our daily lives. I'll, I'll, um, I'll quickly I'll quickly interrupt one minute Lily and give an example one of mm-hmm. the clients I'm working with at the moment in Sheffield is in a pre-startup um, pre-startup business pre-trade business that we've just got a commercial value of eight, uh, $15.5 million for pre-trade. Um, we've done that because from the very offset, from the concept, we've been able to come up with what does the sale value look like and what do we need to create in order that when we sell it in five to eight years' time, it's got the right method, methodology and systems and processes in place that makes it as valuable as we'll sell it for in five years' time. And, so, and I think that that's... We've, we've been able to build that into how we set up the business in the first place. That's the crucial part, isn't it, of, of start with the end in mind. Is this a family business? Is this actually a global multinational? Is this a multi-million pound, even more business? Because the, the, the framework that we use is completely different, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're already in business and you're thinking, oh, I've got it all completely wrong, it is possible to be able to change quite relatively quickly the, the systemology and the, the, um, the, the processes within the business to be able to move from one model to another. But first of all, you've got to understand as to what do you want to achieve from that and then establish as to with the many different models that are available, which ones are going to be the most apt to adopt to 
in order to be able to find that hidden niche and, and unlock the zero that was within every business available to us. And that takes us very, very neatly onto having the goal, isn't it? Or the, is it the BF hag or the haggy? Go on, explain more for the, us the about BFAG, what is a BF having, having a BF hag for me, uh, a big, fat, hairy, audacious goal, something that is so big that it's almost scary to alliterate. It's almost scary to tell somebody as to what the goal is. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that the, the significant difference between a growth business and a scale business is a growth business is often a business that has the capacity to scale, but the owner has got the fear of being able to look what that actually looks like and therefore almost diluted what is the business capable of to their own expectations of what they're capable of, capable of managing. So a BFAG is coming up with something that is so, so big and scary that unless you are committed to doing something every single day that contributes masses towards it, the chances are that you'll never, ever really achieve it. You see, if we look at the, the psychology behind it, if you, if you think small, then the actions that you take have to be microscopic in order to be able to create a lifetime of trying to achieve it. Whereas the moment you turn around and say, well, I'm going to change the world, you can't afford to think small in anything that you do anymore because it's just not going to have any impact. And as a result, you start thinking bigger thoughts, you have bigger decisions to make, and ironically, it has bigger impact. And what's been the most impressive beef hag that you've seen in your consultancy years in the last few years where you've gone, now we're talking, that's somebody who's talking my language? I'd love to say that it's a client that I'm working with at the moment called Richard, and I think he's very close on the heels of being able to cap on what Adam, our case study of a few years ago. Um, I spoke with, uh, spoke at an, uh, an event uh, which Adam attended ooh, a few years ago now, probably five or six, maybe seven years ago now. And he came up to me afterwards. He was already a business owner with his brother of an existing business. And he said, do you know what? I've, I've really not enjoyed listening to you because you've made me realize that the model that we've got in our business just is, isn't capable of delivering what it was that we set out to achieve. You've, you've identified that my goal is a little bit skew with and I've got to go back to the drawing board. And I said, well, that, well, that's great. At least you've learned it now, as opposed to in 30, 40, 50 years time. And he came back to me a few months later and he said, I've sold the business. My brother's chosen to buy it off me and continue running it. I've got 25,000 quid that I'm going to invest in a new startup. I've, I've now learned the methodology of what I need to do. I now need to work out what business or what sector I'm going to apply that in, in order to be able to grow. And Adam took a £25,000 investment startup to an $8.4 million sale in three years, seven months. Brilliant. Brilliant. Retired Fantastic. on his 35th birthday. Ah, <laughs> oh, I bet he's not retired now, though, because that, that no, sort he of... Took, he, took an, he took a year off for him and his wife and his young family to be able to go and relax a little bit after the exceptional amount of dedication that he put into three years, seven months to be able to get it over the line. And then came back out of retirement at 36 and said, right, 100 million by the time I'm 60. So definitely a metrics person. I, I, 100 million and I wonder how many divorces. That's, the, that's my only challenge. Yeah, is, it, is it balanceable with having a decent quality life, that kind of beef hag, that kind of aspiration? Do you know what, Lily, that's, a, that's an exceptional and probably the billion dollar question itself. Um, I would suggest that behind every successful entrepreneur is a far more persevering partner 
than perhaps most of us have got in our lives. I'm fortunate enough to be able to say my business owner is, or my, my partner is also a business owner and therefore understands the trials and tribulations. But we, we started off with four very difficult questions. I, I'm going to add to it with two others. Mm-hmm. What are you prepared to do in order to be able to achieve your BFAG? And what are you not prepared to do to be able to try and achieve the BFAG? Where, where do we draw the line as to what is what, what you're willing and what you're not willing to do? And it comes back to that age-old quote of entrepreneurship. For me, it's doing for a few short years what most won't in order that you can live your life for the rest of your like, life like most people can't. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Some real food for thought there. And and I'm dead excited to speak to you again tomorrow where um, I think you've given me the title for tomorrow's session is 80% of business owners are wrong about everything. We are looking forward to unpicking that tomorrow morning. Thanks so much for joining me today and I'll see you in the morning. Take care.